If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. Listening to the Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Gress. Join me and others as we travel on common flight paths with our guests, gaining insights and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Warblers podcast. Now, I don't say this very often, but I want to remind you and also let our new listeners know that Birds Canada is a charity organization. The work we do for wild bird conservation in Canada and the great discussions and topics that we bring you through this podcast are largely supported by donations. So I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has given to the podcast. We see you. We appreciate you so, so much. As you're thinking about year-end giving, remember that you can give to the Warblers. And if you do, please note the podcast in the comment box so you can put a big smile on everyone's face here in the podcast team. We really do see every gift that comes through and it helps us keep the show going. Check out the link in the show notes. Now, let's dive into our 2023 recap episode. We did one of these episodes a couple of years ago where we rounded up some of the biggest birding stories from across Canada in 2021, and you gave us a lot of positive feedback about that episode. So we're doing it again. We've got Yusuf Atia back on the podcast. You may recognize his voice from the 2021 recap episode. We're also joined by Jared Clark, who's going to be bringing us some exciting insights from Atlantic Canada. We're going to get into some of the most exciting rare bird sightings from across the country, hear what the finches might be up to this season, and of course, we'll get an update on one of the biggest news stories of the year regarding bird names for birds. So stay tuned. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to get you guys to start by introducing yourselves. Just let the listeners know where you're based and kind of what you do for a living. You know, what sparks joy, all that good stuff. Uh, Let's start with Yusuf. Uh, Hi, Andrea. Coming to you from the West Coast, uh, sitting in Richmond, British Columbia, near Vancouver. Um, I work for Birds Canada, where I oversee the Christmas bird count in Canada and manage our website and media library. I've been birding for as long as I can remember. and it sparks a lot of joy every day in my life. Do you have a favorite bird? I knew you were going to ask that question. Um, <laughs> I, I have to, I'm going to be so bold as to say I don't have one favorite bird. I, I've had so many <laughs> different favorite birds over, over the course of my life, and it changes from day to day, month to month. So um, if I had to pick one bird that I'd say I really uh, perhaps connected with or that sort of pushed me more into birding i'd say it was the american dipper um just Mm -hmm. such a unique bird and just so fun to watch you know Mm -hmm. yep very good one very good one and jared tell us a bit about yourself oh hey guys it's great to be here uh i'm on the very opposite end of the country as yusuf uh out here in st john's newfoundland and labrador these days i am a full-time birding guide and and tour leader um, it's kind of a second career for me, which sounds kind of crazy coming from a, a young pup like myself. Uh, but birding has uh, has been a, a big part of my life for a long time now. 
and uh, I'm I'm very fortunate to be able to uh, to make a living doing what I love. So I lead tours year round here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I'm very fortunate to be able to travel throughout the year to lead tours in other parts of Canada and uh, other parts of the world as well. And do you have a favorite bird? Oh, that crazy question. Um, I, I never really. I, it's so hard to pick a favorite bird, as Yusuf said. But obviously, being being where I'm from and having grown up in Newfoundland and Labrador, I have a real soft spot for seabirds of all kinds. So um, of course. I really love seabirds. And if I had to pick one, it would probably be the great shearwater. I, I, there's something about that bird. It's it's nomadic life, living a, living a life of adventure out over the oceans. It, uh, I connect with that somehow. Mm-hmm. And Jared, how would you describe your style of birding? Well, because I, I spend so much time leading tours and guiding, you know, most of my birding is spent birding with, with groups, of course, um, which is fun because I get to share my passion and my knowledge uh, with folks, but I also get to share in uh, in all of their joy and all of their excitement in, in all experiencing new places and new birds. Um, so that's you know that's a big part of my birding is being being able to share it with other people all the time. When I do have a little bit of downtime and I'm by myself, I really enjoy rarity hunting. Um, here, being on the eastern edge of the continent, we uh, we get lots of uh, local rarities here, so it's fun to do that. Uh, and I enjoy photography as well. I don't consider myself a photographer, but I, I definitely enjoy. Um, taking the time to do that. Awesome. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the rarity stuff as well as we go through this discussion today. Uh, Yusuf, how would you describe your style of birding? Yeah, I think I can, uh, I can relate to Jared in some ways on the, um, you know, taking people out, leading trips, whether that's, you know, locally or um, as a tour guide professionally. And um, yeah, that what he, what you said, Jared, about how you sort of get to relive the joy of seeing birds for the first time, for example, through other people. Um, I really get a kick out of that. Um, but I think like birding style wise, um, it really just depends on what the focus is. So I'm perfectly happy just doing some backyard birding, uh, watching my feeders, uh, but also, you know, can spend several hours standing behind a scope looking for shorebirds or, or sea watch or, you know, waterfall gulls. Uh, and, and isn't that the beauty of birding is like, you don't have to pick a style. You can just do whatever, whatever works and, and it keeps it interesting as well. Mm-hmm. What about you, Andrea? What's your style of birding? Yeah, I guess I, um, I, I think I bird more sporadically. I think I, uh, I'm the type who appreciates birds when I'm out, you know, if I'm out cross country skiing or going for a hike, I can't help but stop and look at the birds that are around me and kind of enjoy their presence. I don't so much seek out the rarities the way you guys do, but maybe one day, maybe it'll come. So you're opportunistic in nature. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's my style. <laughs> so kind of doing a big recap of the year. And one of the big stories from 2023 ongoing is this intense El Nino event. Do these events have a big impact on birds in North America? Well, first we'll get into how it's for folks who don't know, the El Nino is its radically impacting our weather here in Canada. In the western part of the country where Yusuf and myself are, we're getting a, a much, much drier and warmer winter than we normally would. Um, I think out in the east, it's a little bit less dramatic with impacts, but still certainly some, some impacts. And then, of course, throughout all of North and South and Central America, the birds are being impacted by El Nino. So I thought it would be really cool to discuss that a little bit. If um, if you'd like to 
get into it for us, Jared. Yeah. So as you as you guys were, were mentioning, you know, El Nino is often thought of as a, a Pacific event, which it is. It's of course that's where it takes place, but it does have some effects on the Atlantic coast. We just don't often think about it as much over here because we're, we're more further removed, and we especially don't think about how it's affecting birds and bird movement um, in the eastern half of the continent. Um, and it's probably somewhere where a lot more research could be done. There is quite a bit of work looking at some of the weather effects um, of the El Nino on the Atlantic portion of the continent. Um, and one of those is that during the summer, normally we see during El Nino years a reduced um, hurricane season, uh, less storms, lower intensity storms. Um, and oddly enough, that didn't really happen this year. We had a pretty average hurricane season. Um, and part of the reason possibly for that is that while El Nino has been happening on the Pacific, um, here in the Atlantic, we've been having record high ocean temperatures. And of course, the higher the ocean temperature, um, usually the more volatile the hurricane season. So we were still seeing um, quite a number of hurricanes coming up the Atlantic coast, bringing with them all the hurricane waifs that people get so excited about uh, when you think about uh, seabirds and all those kinds of things being brought up from the south to uh, to the Atlantic Canada and, and other parts of the Atlantic coast. Um, and the other major effect that El Nino tends to have on the Atlantic is that we tend to have um, sort of colder, stormier winters. Um, and it's unclear right now um, what's going to happen this winter because at the same time, again, we have those those higher than usual um, ocean temperatures here in the Atlantic. And we're not sure how that's going to affect, um, you know, our, our winter here. Um, it could be a pretty tough year tough winter on a lot of birds uh, in Atlantic Canada, um, especially those that are sort of relatively new wintering species in this area, species that have sort of just expanded their range um, due to climate change or are uh, wintering more regularly than they used to in recent decades. That's a really interesting point to think about the birds that, you know, they've come up because they're the warming climate has allowed them to do so. But then when you get a, a more extreme cold season, how is that going to hit? Exactly. Yeah. Like last year, we had a, a relatively mild for, for our area winter, and a lot of species sort of made it through the winter that might normally not be able to do so. If those same same birds try to do that this year, maybe it's it's going to be a lot more difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the neighbors to the south might see some birds in uh, in different numbers, ones that are getting out of Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. That could very well happen. And what about you, Yusuf? Are you seeing impacts of the El Nino out on the West Coast? Yeah, I, th I think it's fair to say uh, that the warming effect, you know, increases vagrancy of, of seabirds, especially in the Pacific, um, as Jared said. So I have a story actually just hot off the press, uh, a report, a Please. report of a Cook's petrel that was found in a suburb of Vancouver just a few days ago. Like it's not even fully public yet. And uh, this, just to put things in perspective, this is a pterodroma petrel. Um, they're extremely rare in Canadian waters. Um, and if they do occur well offshore, like we're talking 40 kilometers offshore. And the ones that we usually get are like um, Murphy's or Hawaiian petrel. Like, so Cook's petrel, this is only the second time we've had a record um, in BC. And the last time a Cook's petrel showed up was a similar case, again, on land, hitting a, a, a structure um, in Lillooet, British Columbia, which is about four hours drive north of here, uh, which was also an El Nino year. So obviously there's some connection with um, pushing these seabirds um, 
inland or further north than they're used to uh, looking for food it's probably related to um, not able not having the ability to access food and moving further north um, or outside of their core areas just wandering around um, so yeah I would definitely say that we've had we're seeing an effect of and once we get into some of the other um, rarities we British Columbia also had its first uh, masks booby again probably related to this El Nino event. Hmm, that's pretty cool. So the, the Cook's petrel, that's like a New Zealand bird, right? Uh, this is a bird that you expect to see, yeah, further south and way west of of us here, yeah. <laughs> way, way further away. Interesting. This has been a fun year for rarities and um, anyone looking for rarities, it's been, uh, they've probably been rewarded. Mm-hmm. Well, so what are other noteworthy bird dispersals that you've been seeing over the last year? Well, here in British Columbia, the big story has been uh, these pygmy nuthatches. Uh, so they're generally a non-migratory species, um, at least in the classic sense of the definition of mi- migra- migratory. So they're limited to the southern interior of British Columbia, mostly the Okanagan Valley. And they very rarely stray from uh, ponderosa pine forests. They're specialists of ponderosa pine. Uh, but we started this fall, we started getting... Um, reports in Washington state away from like coastal areas of Washington state. And then Vancouver Island started getting a few. Um, and you know, this is, this is extremely rare for these, for these birds to wander this far, um, away from their core range. And then there's actually one actually went eastward all the way to Regina in Saskatchewan, which is just an outstanding record for this species. Um, so yeah, pygmy nut hatches, everyone in the Vancouver area, we've had a few now and everyone is like putting up their peanut feeders, uh, hope, hoping that the, <laughs> the pygmy will choose them and, and come to their yard. <laughs> the chosen one. Sounds like people across the prairies should be putting up the feeders too. Definitely. Yeah. All winter long, it's going to, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Cool. And Jared, have you been seeing some interesting bird dispersals or, or movements over the last year? Yeah, we've been seeing some some interesting bird dispersals here in the eastern half of uh, of Canada as well. And interestingly, a lot of them are coming from the west. Whether that's related to, again to El Nino, it, it's hard to tell. Um, but this summer, there was there was a real little spurt of um, shorebirds that arrived in Atlantic Canada that are typically you know Asian or, or Pacific shorebirds. Um, so, for example, Newfoundland had its first redneck stint. Uh, around the same time, Quebec had its very first uh, lesser sand plover, which is completely ridiculous. Um, Pacific golden plover, uh, Nova Scotia had a bar-tailed godwit. So there, there were all these these shorebirds that we sort of associate as being Asian um, that somehow were getting to Atlantic Canada. Um, kind of hard to tell how that's happening. Uh, a lot of a lot of theories, including my own, are that they're probably uh, doing what we call coming over the top, you know, as as the uh, with climate change and the uh, the Northwest Passage opening up, and maybe the effects of El Nino pushing some of these birds over. They're probably coming over the top of Canada uh, from the Pacific um, and then showing up in Atlantic Canada, which is is pretty interesting. And already this fall, um, Ontario, Quebec, all of Atlantic Canada have been reporting what seems to me to be a higher number of um, Western vagrants, things like like flycatchers. Um, you know, Western tanagers, uh, Western warblers showing up in Atlantic Canada. In fact, just yesterday, I was very fortunate to see Newfoundland and Labrador's very first record of McGillivray's warbler. So, so all these birds that are making their way across 
the continent some somehow or another. And uh, again, that may be related to, uh, to you know changes in jet streams and those kinds of things that are due to uh, this very strong El Nino that's going on. Pretty wild. But Newfoundland is kind of a unique spot for rare birds normally, right? Absolutely, yeah. Very lucky to live where I live uh, in in that way because we get uh, we get rare birds from all directions. You know, we get great birds from the north. Things like ivory gulls and Ross's gull occur fairly regularly. Um, we get vagrants from the west, and we also get, of course, vagrants from a, a, across the pond. We call it the European birds that show up with uh, quite a bit of regularity in Newfoundland. So it's a it's a fun place to be a birder. That's for sure. Yeah, it's got to really keep you on your toes when you see something new. It could be really new. Absolutely, yeah. There are quite a few, uh, you know, first and, and in lots of cases only North American records of uh, especially European species um, that show up on our doorstep. Sounds like a good place to book a tour, Absolutely. hey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's get into finch eruptions. I'm wondering what's predicted for this winter. And I'm also curious about the red crossbills moving east over the last summer and why that was occurring in such large numbers. So as you know, finches, especially crossbills, are, are very closely tied to the abundance of cones. Um, and cones happen in cycles, right? Like they, there's bumper years and there's crashes. So uh, crossbills really um, evolved to become completely nomadic um, to, the, to the point that they can even initiate nesting at any time of year. So um, they're, it's, it's incredible um, how they've evolved. So uh, there are about a dozen or so red crossbill types um, in North America, and each one has a favorite cone that they evolved to specialize uh, in feeding on. Uh, but in some cases, the cone crops crash. So any given, spe- any given type of crossbill, a red crossbill specifically, can, can move around the, the continent looking for, for more cones. So what I think happened was that we had a bumper crop in the West uh, last winter. And when the crossbills depleted that, they started moving eastward looking for uh, more cones, more, more food. And I've actually heard of reports of literally, you know, two, three, maybe even four crossbill types in one flock. Uh, so they're just, they're just looking for food and heading east because the, probably the, the cone crop has uh, been depleted in the, in the West. And I want to, um, just for listeners who have who've never heard about the, this type of red crossbills, so 12 different types, right? And they're the same species, but they sort of stick to generally one area and have slight variations in their song and bill structure, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, physically... The main difference that you you can see in, in in the different types is the size of the bill, and that depends obviously on the robustness of the the cones that they specialize in. Um, Jared actually in Newfoundland, the Newfoundland type of crossbill has, I believe, the the largest bill. Like, is that correct, Jared? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That on average they have the largest bill of all the crossbill types. Right, and so yeah, we should care about these crossbill types because. Um, it's a little while now. I'm not sure how many years, but one one type, the Kasha crossbill, uh, has been elevated to a full species. I think it's been five or six years now. Um, and there are other candidate species. I think I think uh, the Newfoundland type is is also a candidate for for being elevated potentially um, because it's so isolated. And I'm, I'll leave it to Jared. He could probably speak more to to the 
the red crossbills in Newfoundland. So yeah, the, the, the red crossbills here in Newfoundland are, are what we call the, the Perkness subspecies. They're type eight um, red crossbill and they're, they're considered to be resident and endemic to the island of Newfoundland, possibly wandering as far as Anticosti Island in, in Quebec um, on occasion. Um, but yeah, they're, one of the interesting things about the red crossbill here is that like the Cassia crossbill, which as Yusuf mentioned, was recently elevated to its own species, um, our crossbills evolved in a squirrel-free zone. Squirrels are a relatively new introduction to the island of Newfoundland. So for centuries, our red crossbills lived in an environment without the competition from red squirrels. Um, and again, much like the Cassia crossbill, they developed these really large bills um, partly because of that. And uh, I mean, I don't think it's it's ever really been proposed uh, for them to be elevated to their own species. Um, but it's they certainly are of all the types probably the best candidate for that to, to happen in the future. This is this is nerdy. I like I'm really enjoying it. So if you've got a red crossbill at your feeder, it might not be one like it could be a different type. You know, you might have different types coming through and you wouldn't be able to see that to look at them. And I think that's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the only way to really identify them is, is, is through recordings and listening to their flight calls. And that's something that I think would be really fun if a lot more birders across the country, that includes me and especially, you know, other birders here in, in Newfoundland, um, just to, to start recording some of these crossbills when you encounter, to encounter them. Um, it's becoming much easier now with, uh, with eBird and, and sonograms and all of that um, to be able to identify these, these types. And I bet in the next few years, we're going to learn an awful lot about uh, red crossbills and their movements. Very cool. We're going to put some information in the episode description so people can learn a little bit more about that. If you're listening and you're like, oh man, what kind of crossbills do I have? And you want to start sending in recordings, we'll put some information and you can figure out how to explore that and learn some more. Are there any big finch eruptions predicted for this season, like moving beyond the red crossbills? I don't think that there's any huge eruptions predicted. Um, one of the interesting things that it looks like it's happening right now is that most of Canada, across Canada, is having a pretty poor cone crop. Um, and it's kind of bookended by good cone crops here in Newfoundland on the very eastern edge and in Alaska um, in, in western North America. So what you may see is, is sort of a, a movement of some of, the, uh, some of the finch species sort of towards the polar ends, I guess, of, of the, uh, the country. Um, especially those that are dependent on, um, evergreen cones, you know, fir and spruce, larch cones, those kinds of things. Um, because, um, many of the deciduous cones like alders and stuff are actually having a pretty good year right across the country. So a lot of birds that will eat those. So your goldfinch and your, uh, your red poles, for example, uh, may be present throughout Canada, whereas we're going to start seeing things like the white wing crossbills and the red crossbills, um, you know, purple finch may be moving more towards the, uh, you know, the, the eastern and western extremes of the country. Cool. I should clarify for listeners that we're not talking about exploding finches. The term eruption is kind of weird. Uh, it's more about just at the, as the food sources change, you might get a big uh, boom of a different finch species moving through a region that is essentially just seeking out more food, right? Yeah, it's actually er, erupt spelled with an I. Uh, it's got a slightly different spelling, but it's a, uh, yeah, it's the term we like to use. And I think it's worth mentioning, you know, a lot of us associate bird movement with north south, especially like when it comes to migration. But, you know, our finches, 
many of them are really northern specialists. They really move east to west, and a great a large portion of them just do stay in the north and within Canada, which is kind of is kind of worth uh, worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna pivot to an entirely different topic now. Again, looking at big news stories of 2023. One of the really big ones that happened just a few weeks ago was when the American Ornithological Society announced that they had accepted the recommendations put forward by the AOS Ad Hoc English Bird Names Committee to change all the English language names of birds within its geographic jurisdiction. So this is where they're changing the birds who are named for people or eponyms. Uh, because some of these names are linked to offensive people. Some, they're also changing some names that are kind of offensive or exclusionary. So this is a really, really big thing. We could see birds such as the Cooper's Hawk or the Stellar's Jay. They're going to be getting renamed in the future. What do you guys think about this decision and what it means for birding in Canada? Absolutely huge news, right? This is the biggest news of the decade of maybe maybe even more like it's uh, it's going to have implications for all of us um, who care about birds in North America because these common names are all going to be different. What, I, what I'm most surprised by is that how easy it is to relearn names. Um, so for me, Mugal was changed, uh, I believe, two years ago, and that was a change that I was not completely, you know, particularly happy with, and it, it wasn't even an eponym. But what I found was that I, after, after only like two years, I'm already at a point where I can't imagine that species being anything other than like a, a short-billed gull, which is what it was changed to. So I think in practice, um, people will find that once you use these names, especially if you use them frequently, that you will just start to you know, adapt and it'll just become whatever the new name is. And it'll be a lot less disruptive than I think people feel like it will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of the new names might be a bit more descriptive. We might have birds named more for their behaviors or their visual appearance, and that'll make it easier for new birders to learn those birds as well. Uh, what do you think about this change, Jared? Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely 100% agree with the premise behind this. I think we should be doing everything in our power to make birding as open and inclusionary uh, and or inclusive um, as we can for everybody. Um, so I absolutely agree that we, that this is a move that needs to be made. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure that sort of the announcement has, has been handled all that well. And it's, I know it's been creating a lot of division in the community. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm happy to see that people are being passionate about birds and birding, no matter what side of the argument that they're on, anything that sort of, you know, creates conversation in the birding world, uh, I think is important. Um, so, you know, I like to look at, at, at sort of the sunny side of that, um, and in the end, you know, I'm going to be enjoying the birds um, just as much, you know, regardless of what they're called. So, you know, I've never been a big fan of eponyms anyways, and uh, uh, names are just names. You know, the birds are going to be just as amazing, whatever we call them. Oh, right on. Yeah. And yeah, it's it'll time will tell exactly what the new naming process will look like and how we'll come to decide on those names. But I think it sounds like the public might be involved. It might be a chance to really have some discussion and learn about new species. And, and, you know, I think it could be a lot of fun. Nice way to get people talking about birds. Yeah. And hopefully we can come up with some better names than short-billed gold. 
Absolutely. 100%. All right. So talking good news, bad news. I mean, that's certainly a good news story from the past year. Uh, But if you guys could pick, you know, maybe another good news story or perhaps a bad news story, something you've been watching that you'd want to highlight, what what would those be? Uh, Let's start with you, Jared. Yeah, I mean, so many good news stories out there. But one that I I think is a is a is a great news story um, is the bird friendly city initiative that's been happening over the last couple of years. Um, And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a program, a certification program that was started by Nature Canada a number of years ago. inviting municipalities, cities across um, Canada to um, to become certified as, as bird-friendly cities. Um, these are cities that are actively looking to restore, protect, and maintain bird-friendly habitats within their urban areas. Um, they actively mitigate threats by doing things like you know, promoting the the use of bird friendly glass and the turning off of lights in in buildings. And the even better news is that already, just in the first couple of years since it's been rolled out, there are more than twenty cities across Canada which have signed up for this program. Um, you know, showing great interest. Um, you know, from our municipal leaders in actually um, doing something that's positive for the environment and for birds, and of course for birders. That's so awesome. And if you are in a big city and you're curious, you can go and look up if your city's involved and there might even be opportunities to join a, you know, volunteer program and help help out with some of the stuff locally and that's that's really cool too. What about you, Yusuf? Any big highlights for you? Yeah, well, I'm pretty happy to to hear about the um decision to relump western flycatcher, uh previously two species, the Pacific slope flycatcher and the Cordillerian or Cordillerian flycatcher. And this was a really contentious uh, s- split when it happened. And it was, uh, it, many people were not happy about, about it. And now that it's actually relumped, people, even though they've lost a species on their list, uh, which birders are usually not happy about losing a, a species. But in this case, the, the identification was so problematic that um, the lumping made sense. So I think a lot of birders are happy about this. Western flycatcher relump, and um, yeah, and I, I grew up birding in Alberta, which was a zone of of over overlap between the two previous species, and it was always f- kind of frustrating not knowing which one we really had, and I guess there wasn't enough evidence in the first place to create those two different species, and um, we've sort we sort of solved that now by relumping Western flycatcher. So that's that's good news for me. Cool. That's kind of a niche little one. I don't think I'd have heard about that. And how about, uh, I hate to say, bad news stories? Anything really dark go on over 2023, Yusuf? Honestly, I, I there's been a lot of dark stuff. So I'm, I'm going to cancel out a dark, bad news story with another good news story. Hey. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, have, I have really been noticing an increase in um, the interest of birding, um, especially among younger people. And I have to say, I just think that's the best thing. It's just awesome to see more people appreciate birds, especially young people, because that gives us confidence that um, our our interest, our hobby, you know, our our lifestyle of birding is going to continue. So anytime I see young folks out there getting interested, and there are more and more of them, um, that is the best news story. And I just see it every year, more and more. And this year was no no exception. So mm-hmm. that is something to feel really good about. Jared, anything you'd like to add? 
Yeah, so I guess if we are going to talk about bad news stories, which which I think it is important to sort of uh, recognize sometimes the, the the darker things that are happening out there in the birding world as well. Even when we have lots of success stories, we still have lots of work to do. Um, I'm going to mention a couple. Uh, one is that uh, you know there's some recent news out there that the uh, the puffin population here in Newfoundland had a bit of a rough year. Um, they had a very poor hatch year with a lot of. Um, apparent deaths uh, of the the brand new chicks in in our uh, in a couple of our larger colonies uh and it seems that they were starving due to a lack of food most of which would have been um the capelin which is a a small schooling fish that occurs in huge numbers normally here um in the the northwest atlantic um and that's a fish species that's been fished more and more um in recent decades um uh, through commercial fishery putting a lot of pressure on it so i think that uh, this is something that we really need to look at um, is, is reducing the pressure on some of the, uh, the food stocks for a lot of our seabirds. Um, and unfortunately, you know, for, for the, the puffins, um, this poor reproduction year came on the heels of what was a really tough avian flu year last year on a lot of our seabird populations um, here in the North Atlantic. The other bad news story that I think a lot of folks uh, probably noticed uh, last month um, was this, this huge event a migration event where more than a thousand birds were dead birds were picked up around a single building in Chicago um, after a night of heavy migration, you know, having struck the, the windows of these highly lit, um, you know, uh, skyscrapers. And just one building alone killed almost a thousand birds. Um, and that was just one building. And you know, you know what was happening all across the city and probably in other cities in the east as well. Um, so I think that we have a lot of work left to do in mitigating some of the threats that are out there, these man-made threats um, to all of our migrating songbirds, which are already facing so many other challenges. And a lot of these things are so preventable. There are easy things we can do by turning off lights and using bird-friendly glass. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of work um, left to be done. And, and that one event uh, really, really highlighted it for me and I'm sure for a lot of other people. I think it did. And that ties back into, I mean, the good news you were saying about the bird-friendly cities and the push to move that across Canada. We need more of that. Cities are a huge obstacle for our migrating birds. And yeah, that was a huge event out of Chicago. That shook me too when I saw that pop up on social media. Well, do we have anything uh, we're looking forward to in 2024? I'm looking forward to welcoming a lot of visiting birders uh, out here to to share my beautiful province and all of our wonderful birds with them. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just absolutely looking forward to a, a real fun year of birding ahead. Folks, if you're listening and you've got a trip planned out east, maybe uh, you should get in touch with Jared and hop on one of his tours. You should definitely get in touch with Jared and hop on one of his tours. And <laughs> I'll say this, and I can't believe we went through a whole conversation without mentioning the stellar sea eagle mm. that is in Newfoundland, uh, who, who's, uh, yeah. I, who I believe has made Newfoundland its unofficial home. Yeah, why, um, why wouldn't but, it? I mean, <laughs> my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it's crazy that um, that bird has been so successful at the summering in, in Newfoundland now. And Jared, you've seen, you've seen it a few times, I believe. I have. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. It was, this was a wonderful year because it spent basically the whole summer, you know, in one small, basically two square kilometer area. And uh, so a lot of birders were able to come to Newfoundland and uh, with a, you know, and, and very successful in, in seeing that bird. And it is just a, just such a stunning bird. And you get, and you're guaranteeing mm -hmm. everyone who goes on your tours gets to see it, correct? <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> uh, Yusuf, anything you're looking forward to in the next year? Yeah, well, in the short term, uh, we're coming up on the uh, Christmas bird count season, which is yeah. like 
for some obvious reasons, one of my favorite times of the year. About halfway through the CBC season, I'm going on a family vacation to Oaxaca, Mexico, and I'm mm. potentially going to be doing my first ever CBC outside of Canada. If I can do a CBC outside of Canada, I think that would be uh, really cool. That's a really, really nice thing to look forward to. Well, thank you so much to both of you. This has been a fun recap. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, there you have it, folks. That is our quick roundup of all the big bird happenings over the past year. Big thanks to Yusuf and Jared for joining us. So write in if we miss something. If you want to share one of your major highlights, let us know. Spotify users can drop a quick comment in the episode description. And if you'd like more information about the Christmas bird count that Yusuf mentioned, we've got a full episode about that. We chatted with Yusuf last year to get all of the answers to your burning questions like, why is it called the Christmas bird count? And what is it? (laughs) So go check out that episode. It's called Tis the Season for the Christmas Bird Count. And with that, folks, enjoy a lovely winter birding season. Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. Visit birdscanada.org slash warblerspodcast to make a donation today. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Kate Dogleash, Chris Koo, and Andrea Gress, with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep birding.